From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in today's show, we'll ask John Nichols about Ron Johnson, the Republican senator from Wisconsin. Now that Trump is gone, he's become the leading Republican voice of conspiracy theories and the leading defender of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. But will he run for re-election next year? He hasn't said yes, and he hasn't said no. But first... The arrival of multiple vaccines against COVID-19 in less than a year after the virus's emergence is sort of a miracle. But there's nothing miraculous about the failure of donor nations, along with pharmaceutical and biotech companies, to prepare for and mount a global vaccination campaign. For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic. He's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, 400 million doses of vaccine have been delivered so far, and residents of wealthy and middle-income countries have received about 90% of them. Under current projections, the rest of the world will have to wait years. But the news last week was that the United States is going to send millions of vaccine doses to Mexico and Canada. Is that the sort of thing you think we need more of? No, not at all. <laughs> the point is, is that we need a global strategy to, to scale up vaccination across the, the world quickly and broadly. Um, and dumping extra product in Mexico and uh, Canada next door is, is not a solution. It's not strategic. It's an afterthought. And we need to do much, much better than that. Well, let's talk about the patent for the heart of the vaccines. I read that on March 30th, the patent will finally be issued for the discovery that lies at the heart of existing COVID vaccines. It was the work of a scientist at the National Institutes of Health Lab. Who funds the National Institutes of Health? You and I do. American taxpayers do. So the United States government will control that patent. Uh, the New York Times page one article this week that quoted you also said the United States could, quote, force companies to publish vaccine recipes, share their know-how, and ramp up manufacturing. Uh, has that ever been done before, and, and how would it work? So th there are many times where the government has decided we need something, and um, we need it uh, at a scale and at a speed um, more quickly than you would like to deliver it. Um, and for lots of wartime materials, um, this has been done with the Defense Production Act or other kinds of um, sections of the US code like 1498 have been engaged to, to help um, the government procure, buy and procure and produce what it needs for, for, for various emergencies. Um, you know, in the context of the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, the patents are one part of the story, but we also need the technical know-how of the company. So they're not gonna be um, drag kicking and screaming. They're going to be incentivized with lots of money, um, probably from the federal government to open up um, more voluntary licenses to allow public, uh, to, to allow broader production across the world, rather than these sort of piecemeal one-off deals between a company and, a, and a, a company in the US and a company in India or somewhere else. Um, but again, this needs to be done at scale, needs to be done strategically with a comprehensive vision of quick scale up of vaccination around the world, not just um, uh, as an afterthought about the American uh, uh, endeavor to get everybody vaccinated from coast to coast. 
On another front, Johnson & Johnson, that's, of course, the company with a vaccine that requires only one shot instead of two, has said it will provide the vaccine on a not-for-profit basis for, quote, as long as the world continues suffering from the pandemic, close quote. That sounds great, but, of course, it's not quite the same as sharing their vaccine recipe. Yeah, again, you know, the point is, is that having sort of sweetheart deals between uh, an originator company and its chosen licensee somewhere else. It's not about is 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 about um, uh, putting your words out to market and finding a, somebody who will pay you what you want for to license your technology. The point is, this is a public health emergency, and so all the companies need to be on the line to basically offer their know-how um, um, with resources from not just the American government but any rich government that can put money on the table to scale up worldwide. Because it's in our all in our collective interest to do so, um, but doing it company by company, contract by contract, inch by inch, you know, second by second, it's going to take too long uh, to, to do the scale up. We need economies of scale. We need we need a, a massive um, mobilization here, not sort of like business as usual, which the companies are are, are far are far happier to, to deal with. The defenders of big pharma say pressuring companies to share patents patents will undermine innovation. What do you say? Oh, please. That's what I say. <laughs> you know, they said this all along. You know, they said in the 60s that the Kefauver Amendment at the FDA, which told them that they had to prove their drugs actually worked, was going to bankrupt the pharmaceutical industry. And we had a great flourishing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s of, of big pharma. Um, you know, during the late 1990s, early 2000s, AIDS activists were clamoring for generic AIDS drugs um, for, for low and middle income countries. The company said, you will destroy innovation in the global pharmaceutical market for antivirals. Well, no, we have a thriving antiretroviral, a far thriving antimicrobial market, at least for antivirals, remdesivir, one of the drugs approved for, for treating COVID-19, actually comes from the same company that, that warned us about, you know, pressuring them around generic production uh, for HIV drugs. So we wonder how much are COVID vaccines worth to big pharma? I saw a piece at CNN last week that said the government pays Pfizer $20 per dose for their vaccine. And the company expects to take in about $15 billion for its COVID vaccine by the end of this year with a profit margin of nearly 30%. 30% seems high to me, but Pfizer's defenders say the company did not take any taxpayer money to develop its vaccine and assumed all the risk with a $1 or $2 billion investment in research and development, and therefore they, they deserve a 30% profit. What do you say to that? Well, I'll say, let's look at the basic research that went into developing your vaccine, and then let's talk about how much you put into that. And they won't be able to say it. They'll say, we, we developed this vaccine product and we took it to market with minimal um, U.S. taxpayer support, but all the formative research, um, you know, was funded by NIH, at least in part. Um, so the idea that they are an independent research and development um, engine without any sort of um, uh, reliance on uh, the U.S. taxpayers' um, generosity over the past, you know, 50, 60 years is, is ludicrous. Um, and so, again, 10% is a lovely profit. 20%, 30%, you might want to say it's profiteering rather than profit, um, particularly when they're they have the rest of the world over a barrel about access to their vaccines. They don't get to decide who lives and dies. 
you know, a 10% profit is still quite a bit of money for them to, to, to give back to their shareholders while uh, it allows many other people to live around the world. You've said we need a comprehensive global strategy rather than the piecemeal proposals which are on the table right now. What would that look like? Well, we need to think about the vaccines that are in the that are already uh, under emergency use authorization in the U.S. Um, ones that um, are coming along um, uh, down the pipeline, like the Novavax vaccine, um, and start to sort of lay out which ones would be most appropriate for which setting, and how we. Um, we'll go about scaling up um, each of them in turn. What kind of um, industrial facilities do we need in terms of physical plant? What kind of commodities, uh, chemicals, vials do we need? And how are we going to deal with the supply chain management for all of those? Um, so that's the, the first bit of it, yeah. And I know that India has tremendous capacity to manufacture pharmaceuticals. I assume perhaps other countries will be able to manufacture their own too. Well, India has its own vaccine the Serum Institute vaccine. And I think Johnson & Johnson is, is contracted uh, with a firm to make the J&J vaccine um, uh, over, over there. So India, Thailand, Brazil, South Africa, there's lots of countries that have um, domestic pharmaceutical capacity. They need the technical know-how um, from the companies. Um, it's not simply a recipe and you hand it over and you you, you build the same vaccine. It's, it's a much more complicated task, so it needs you know, hands-on engagement by the companies, but that can be incentivized through um, payments for, for the services rendered, et cetera. And what can you tell us about the Chinese vaccine and the Russian vaccine? Um, I don't know very much about them, um, but what's interesting is that China and Russia, um, to a large extent, have decided that um, where the U.S. is not going to um, step in, they will certainly do so. Um, and, um, you know, not to be jingoistic, but I don't think from um, their perspective, it's done out of generosity. They see it as vaccine diplomacy um, and that um, uh, generosity in this context brings goodwill. Um, and that um, if you want to remember who your friends are, you remember your friends in a crisis. And if the country that gave you a vaccine was Russia or China, um, when push comes to shove the next time on the global geopolitical stage, you, you need you need an ally by your side. You're going to remember who your friends and who your friends weren't. And if the U.S. is not willing to supply vaccines to the world, other people will step in and do it. And we've seen Russia and China be willing to do that. Well, goodwill takes me back to uh, American politics. Uh, the drug makers think that the political benefits of the vaccine may be even greater than the profits. Typically, people who take a drug on a daily basis don't know which company produced it. At best, they know the the brand name for the drug. But with the COVID vaccine, everybody knows the names Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. One drug company sp spokesperson said, there really has been a sea change in the way people perceive the drug companies. They're not seen as greedy big pharma charging outrageous prices. They're saving the world. This is really brilliant PR, close quote. And more important, he said, quote, it may help quiet the recent talk about government action to drive down drug prices, close quote. Do you have any comment? In your dreams, Sarah, in your dreams. The point is, is that um, uh, drugs, there's no, there's an op-ed in the New York Times this week, I think Peter Bach at um, Memorial Sloan Kettering, biologicals. Um, which many of these companies make, um, are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
Um, so if you happen to have a, a cancer or an autoimmune disease, you could be paying $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, $400,000, $500,000 for, for a year's course of these drugs. They're outrageously priced based on a monopoly model that the companies love. Um, and, you know, yes, we're all happy to be running to the arms of our vaccinators and getting our Moderna or our Pfizer vaccine. The point is, is that they have the rest of the world over the barrel. And while, you know, we may... Um, be grateful for Johnson and Johnson and Moderna for supplying the vaccines that go into our arms and the arms of the people we love. Um, it's basically at the expense of, of, of the rest of the planet. Um, and so um, goodwill, you know, it stops at the borders of the United States. And, um, you know, people, people don't have such short memories. People understand that many people can't afford their insulin, um, that they can't afford their co-pays on drugs. Um, many people are uninsured or underinsured and have to deal with uh, steep drug prices on their own. So please, you know, I take antiretrovirals to keep myself alive with HIV for 20, 30 years. I'm grateful to the companies, but being grateful to them doesn't mean they get to decide who lives and who dies. And before we let you go, I just want to ask a couple of smaller questions, worries from uh, vaccine skeptics that I know. Um, my next door neighbor says he wants to wait five years before getting a COVID vaccine because we don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine. What do you say to that? So as you said, 400 million doses of these vaccines collectively have been administered over, over the past few months with remarkably few side effects. Um, you know, one of the important things to, to remember is that um, this was done by the book. Um, many people were worried that President Trump in uh, mid-2020 would look for a way to sort of um, cut corners on vaccine development for a vaccine October surprise, which would help him win the election. Um, the hue and cry from the scientific community was strong enough that the FDA was backed into a corner and had to do it by the book. And so the trial results, the requirements for, for getting approval were sent to their uh, external advisory committee. Um, which agreed to to give emergency use authorization to the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, um, uh, and and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So um, I wouldn't wait to take the vaccine. Um, I would take it as soon as I could get get it in my hands. There are plenty of people around the world who would be, you know, who are literally dying to be in your shoes. Um, and so I tell your neighbor, don't wait. Um, you know, because your friends and family love you and want you to be here for 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 the next five years and not be at risk of, of, of coming into contact with some variant of COVID-19 that, that um, is more transmissible or more deadly and may, may take you off this planet. So learn about the facts and the science, go to CDC, go to NIH. There's plenty of um, independent sources um, for, for getting vaccine information, but know that it was done um, with great fidelity to the integrity of the process by most of the companies um, and uh, the NIH and the other trial sponsors, and, and that these vaccines are remarkably effective, and most importantly, remarkably effective. Nobody would have thought we've had a vaccine by now. Nobody thought they've been so effective, and that miracle is a miracle. Another friend is worried that the RNA vaccines could be dangerous because they are a form of gene therapy. What do you say to that? They're not gene therapy. You know, when you think of gene therapy, what you do is you um, engineer genes to, to, to reside in your, your own DNA for in perpetuity, right? The idea is that, you know, if you can't make a certain protein, you know, your, 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 your altered 
your cellular DNA, what they'll do is they'll splice in a gene into a, a blood cell, infuse it in you, and then you know you have a, a new functioning gene to to get rid of um, one that was malfunctioning or didn't have uh, a, a, any ability to function given your condition. Um, this vaccine RNA doesn't integrate into your DNA at all. Um, it gets into your cellular machinery and allows it for a short time to pump out spike protein, and then it um, uh, disappears on its own. It's not making it's not making fully competent virus. Um, it's making the spike protein at all. And RNA doesn't go into. We're not an RNA species. We're a DNA species. If it was going to get into your DNA and stick around, it would have to be transcribed into DNA and then get in, integrated into your cells. And that's not going to happen. It gets. Um, uh, it goes through a round of of, of translation to protein, and, and then its job is done. And I have a third friend who has the opposite kind of, of uh, concern. Uh, they don't want the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because it's not as effective. What would you say to that person? The point is, is that all these vaccines are remarkably effective at preventing serious disease and illness. Um, the other thing is we don't know. We've, ne we've never seen them head to head. Right, we we don't know if Johnson and Johnson is better than Moderna or 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 better than Pfizer. The point is they've never put head to head. Just in terms of the the um, results of that given trial, it was ninety five or eighty seven percent effective. The point is with vaccines too. We're talking about community protection. Um, yes, you and I are protected from being vaccinated. But it doesn't matter who gets vaccinated with what. The point is is coverage. Right. If you have ten people in a room and six of them have Johnson & Johnson and two have Moderna and one has Pfizer and one is asymptomatically infected and has the virus, the 90 you can probably need most likely to be fine, right? The point is there's safety in numbers and the more people we get vaccinated with whatever vaccine you can get your hands on, that's, that's, that's key. They're all too close together in terms of what their ability is to, to stop serious disease and illness and death. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't fuss about this one or that one. I'd get whatever one you could get as quickly as possible. Greg Gonsalves, he writes about the coronavirus and its vaccines for thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's front page news in the New York Times. Now that Trump is gone, Senator Ron Johnson has become the leading Republican voice of conspiracy theories and the leading defender of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Ron Johnson is from Wisconsin, and so is John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. We reach him today at home in Madison. Hi, John. Hello, John. Uh, I'm still a proud Wisconsinite, despite Ron Johnson. Well, Ron Johnson's most outrageous remark came recently when he said that the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, quote, love this country, that he, quote, never felt threatened, and that he would have been more, quote, concerned if, had it, if it had been protesters from Black Lives Matter. That surprised me that he would be so openly racist. Did it surprise you? No, <laughs> not that much. Uh, he's really working very hard to be um, the most outrageous Wisconsin senator in history. And that's no easy task because it means you have to displace Joe McCarthy. 
Uh, but there is a lot of evidence that Ron Johnson is is determined to do it, and he's he is certainly saying and doing things that that um, really kind of have stepped beyond even the the Ron Johnson territory into this new space, and and I guess it's best understood as this: taking a lesson from Donald Trump. Ron Johnson has determined that if you consistently say the most outrageously dishonest, racist, and xenophobic thing that comes into your mind, uh, you will get a lot of uh, positive reinforcement from right-wing talk radio and the Republican base. And for Johnson, who has long been kind of a backbencher, not a particularly prominent U.S. senator, I think this is kind of exciting. I think he's sort of enjoying the moment, and that's taking him into the national spotlight. As he enters the national spotlight, uh, media like the New York Times and other folks are, you know, kind of examining him a little more and starting to realize that he's probably best described as uh, not just a conspiracy theorist, but really a nut. Really a nut. A couple other things notable that that I want to ask you about. He refused to get the COVID vaccine himself and has repeatedly refused to say that the vaccines are safe or to encourage uh, other people to get them. I don't understand why he doesn't give Trump credit for developing the vaccines under Operation Warp Speed. It's Trump's one actually good achievement. Yeah, it's an interesting thing that Ron Johnson appears to have actually believed the things that Trump said, which we now know that Trump didn't believe. Right? You know, the funny thing is that that you know, in the Bob Woodward interviews and other uh, revelations, we learned that Donald Trump kind of knew that the COVID nineteen was a very serious threat, that the pandemic was was severe, and he he lied about. Right. He didn't want to scare people or whatever. And throughout 2020 into the start of 2021, Donald Trump uh, put out misinformation, false premises, uh, bad messages. And it was cynical. Uh, There's a lot of evidence that Donald Trump, a germaphobe, um, actually did recognize at least some of the threat. Uh, but didn't want to act on it because he feared it might harm the economy or something like that or harm his reelection chances. But Trump got the shot, right? I mean, Trump yeah. understood the the threat and the dangers. Ron Johnson is is sort of the ultimate true believer, right? You know, he even when it's clear he's been lied to by his leader, he continues to you know <laughs> dig in and advance the fantasies. And that was probably best exemplified in the fall in one of his actually less noted um, affronts to the the basic premises of governing when he used his committee chairmanship to hold a oversight committee hearing in which he literally invited quacks, you know, like like people pushing the, the worst kind of responses to the pandemic to testify before Congress, put that in the congressional record, and frankly, amplify it out to uh, people across this country. 
So now we're in a situation where there's a lot of folks who say, well, it's Donald Trump's fault that a lot of Republicans don't take or are refusing to take the vaccine or are disinclined to do so. And it certainly is Trump's fault. He is a part of that. But it's important to understand that the at least as much damage, maybe more damage, uh, has been done by his followers uh, who continue to amplify these ideas. And in that on that team, uh, Ron Johnson is the captain. One of my other favorite nutty things that he's done came in 2015 when he introduced legislation directing the federal government to protect itself against the threat of an electromagnetic pulse. I didn't know about the threat of an electromagnetic pulse. Is this something that Hunter Biden was going to do? Undoubtedly. Um, no, your problem, John, is that you're not spending enough time in the far fringes of you know, right-wing social media. And I'm not, we're not talking here about Fox News or right-wing talk radio. We're talking about the stuff that, that the editors at Fox and right-wing talkers say, you know, ah, we're going to keep away from that. That's too crazy. <laughs> um, but Ron Johnson, you know, dives right in. And yeah, in that he amplified a, a, a fear, a meme, if you will, uh, out of right-wing talk or out of right-wing social media. Uh, that has been discredited. It, it's almost incomprehensible that it got as far as it did. But one of the subtleties of this thing is that by a lot of accounts, Ron Johnson is a terrible boss. Hmm. He's a lousy person to work for. Um, and as a result, uh, a lot of staff turnover and perhaps not, you know, the a, a team of the best and the brightest surrounding him, <laughs> or at the very least, not people who are willing to stand up to his craziness. So as a result, you see in that example, a case, and I think also in this hearing on the, you know, with the quacks on, on COVID-19, uh, where he's kind of allowed to do what he wants to do by his own staff, right? Whereas a lot of good senators have somebody on staff who says, sir, that's, really a bad idea. <laughs> and with Ron Johnson, um, bad ideas seem to go to the top of the list. Let's talk about Ron Johnson's obsession with Ayn Rand, the novelist who wrote The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, who's sort of a cult figure among right-wingers. It, it is vital to understand that Ron Johnson did not go off the rails last month. In fact, Ron Johnson wasn't led off the rails by Donald Trump. He has always been way out there in woohoo land. And he is obsessed with the writings of Ayn Rand, the uh, uh, writer who is a favorite of many of your more uh, kind of out there Republicans. He is so obsessed with her and has been so obsessed with her for so long that he has done interviews with uh, different you know, think tanks and entities that, that promote her writing. And in one of them several years ago, I wrote about this for The Nation a while back, he detailed who he thought he would be in Ron Ron novels, right? <laughs> What's like, which character he would be. This is like people who, you know, go to Star Trek conventions and wear the, you know, put the outfit on. For him, in Atlas Shrugged, he has a favorite character that he thinks he is, or at least that he thinks he is most like, and that his Senate service most reflects that kind of approach. What you recognize is, of course, that Ron Ron 
wrote a lot about kind of the individual who nobody understands and nobody respects, even though he's really a genius and he really, he's really got it all together. And I dare say that I think Ron Johnson sees himself as such. So who exactly is Ron Johnson? I remember when he defeated Russ Feingold, one of our heroes, back in 2010. Ron Johnson seemed to be a complete non-entity who came out of nowhere. He was a Republican businessman. He'd never been elected to anything or done anything, as far as I could tell. Yeah, that would be him. Uh, he's, he um, he you know became wealthy in the uh, the the perhaps one of the more efficient ways to do it, he married into it. Um, uh, he, his, his wife's family is a very successful manufacturing family in Northeastern Wisconsin. And uh, when he came into the family, he took over a part of the, the business, uh, a supplier, if you will, for the, the bigger entity. And, you know, made money. I mean, it's, it's not that hard when it, in, in, that, in that model. And the interesting thing about him is that famously, when he got into the U.S. Senate uh, at one point, he complained about how uh, hard it is for small manufacturers and how, you know, sometimes they'll work really hard on, you know, making a part or making a piece and, you know, they put all their effort in it, they invest all their time in it, and then, you know, they're rejected and it, it isn't, you know, they, they're told by the, per, the company they're supplying that it's not right or something like that. And you thought, well, wow, what a sad story until you realize that he was supplying his own family. And so if, if somebody's giving him a hard time about the lousy job he's doing, it's not because they don't like him. It's because he really wasn't that good at it. And there's an awful lot of evidence that um, when he decided to run for the U.S. Senate in the Tea Party wave of uh, 2010, um, the family business side, the business side of the family, was not particularly bothered that he was getting out of it, you know, that he was heading away. Um, delight to send him off to Washington. Uh, they provided a lot of resources for his campaign. He had a lot of money. Um, and he also, frankly, had a Republican wave in 2010, yeah. which was very lucky for him. And, and he got himself into the U.S. Senate. First six years, not a particularly distinguished senator, not particularly noted, generally did what Mitch McConnell told him to do. Um, and then in 2016, there was a real sense that he would be defeated uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. But that was the Trump year. And if you remember, in the upper Midwest states, Wisconsin, Michigan, especially, um, uh, the, the Trump wave was very important for Republicans. And Ron Johnson surfed it, embraced it. And in his second term, uh, in a more empowered position, committee chair and such, uh, he started to step out of the shadows and become somebody that you really saw as uh, you know, an ardent Trump loyalist and also somebody who, beyond the Trump kind of sphere, uh, is you know, very, he's very self-absorbed, very uh, certain of his, uh, his genius, if you will. <laughs> okay. uh, and unfortunately, he, there's an awful lot of evidence that he's not a genius. Well, the big question about Ron Johnson is whether he will retire or run for re-election next year. He promised to serve only two terms in the Senate when he first ran. And on March 5th, he said that retiring now is, quote, probably my preference now. 
He said, quote, that pledge is on my mind. I'm happy to go home, close quote. Of course, six other Republican senators have already thrown in the towel and announced they won't run. And the New York Times reported that Ron Johnson has raised only $590,000 in the last two years. In the, If you're running for the Senate, at least in 2020, you had to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, not hundreds of thousands. Uh, so the question is whether this media burst is, is like going wild before he says goodbye, or whether this is the beginning of his re-election campaign. What do you think? Look, here's the bottom line. Donald Trump desperately wants Ron Johnson to run for another term. Donald Trump has been on the phone with Ron Johnson, telling him to run. Uh, and for Ron Johnson, a guy whose ego appears to be, you know, in need of such things, those calls, I think, are going to be quite influential as well as the encouragement he's getting from a lot of right-wing talk radio, from right-wing media. He's now a star. He's on the front page of the New York Times. And even though that front page New York Times piece wasn't particularly uh, (laughs) generous to him, uh, for somebody who's kind of playing in the zone that he's playing, uh, that's a level of recognition that I think he enjoys. So my sense is that the needle is kind of moving more toward a re-election run. It's not certain. Uh, there, you know, there's a, a lot of things in play yet, but I wouldn't put the five hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, you know, too high on your list of concerns one way or the other, because we now live in an era where if you are uh, a big player on the right or the left, and if you are getting a lot of attention, your ability to raise a ton of money uh, very quickly is real. It's it's just there. It's and and he has some billionaire benefactors who are very supportive of him. But one final element, too, if he is close to Trump, which he is, uh, it is beyond unlikely. It's just virtually certain that that, uh, he won't face a serious Republican primary challenge. That means he'd be the Republican nominee. If he is the Republican U.S. Senate nominee in Wisconsin in 2022, the Republican Senate campaign committee and its allies will provide him with more money than uh, you, John Wiener, are capable of imagining. And and so uh, if he wants to run for re-election, he can. And uh, and my sense is it's probably a little more toward the likelihood that he will right now than that he won't. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. It's always great to have you on the show. Pleasure. One more thing. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to the nation's newest newsletter, Books and the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of the nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for nation newsletter subscribers, written by the Books and the Arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. The world of books, art, music, and film will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to our new thought-provoking and agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash book newsletter. That's thenation.com slash book newsletter, all one word. Subscribe today. (laughs) 
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.